This spoiler-filled podcast is recorded live, unscripted, and intended for those over 18. Now prepare your ears for the audio stimulation they've been waiting for all day as we step into the spoiler room. I've got my frou-frou, fruity, frosty drink here, so we're all good. Nice. Uh, <laughs> and we're going to talk uh, Dark 80s Movies Part 2. Uh, Brad has been gone for a while because, again, he's had a life. Uh, <laughs> so, But he has been a, a, a very kind man and posting us on a number of websites that um, he's in charge of for Midwest Communications. We appreciate that. But that's who it's for, correct, Brad? Was it Midwest or... Uh, yeah, it's Midwest yeah. Communications. Midwest Communications. So, so you can find some of our podcasts there, uh, some edited ones with, with the naughty words cut out. And <laughs> then, oh, uh, you're the one who does that. <laughs> yeah. and we're, we're also on iTunes now. So, And uh, I had so much fun last time. I was, I was just... We were just starting off here with the spoiler room. We've got Brad now in, we've got Scott, and we're going to do more dark 80s kids films because I just found some more that I wanted to talk about. Uh, and this time around, though, we're not talking about um, puppet movies. We're talking more animated films and live action. And so the first one that I wanted to talk about tonight, well, first off, uh, I don't know if you guys been to Subway. Have any of you been to Subway lately? Yeah. No, uh-uh. Yeah, I have did one on the corner. So. Did, did you see the sign that's in there? Apparently, they're promoting, and this goes with our episode last time of So Bad It's Good Movies. Jared is going to be in Sharknado 2. <laughs> and you know he's going to get eaten. You know he's going to get eaten. That's going to be the joke. That's a great reaction, Brad. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, I have um I I turned around, I literally turned around after I got my sub and uh yeah, and there there it was. Old Jared is going to be in uh in Sharknado 2. So that's our link from our last episode to this one for so bad it's good films is the fact that I saw that today and so I just wanted to bring that up just he's to get that Jared, he's getting Sharknadoed. <laughs> I wonder if the sharks eat him if it's 500 calories or less. So, <laughs> <laughs> and there it so is. The and there it is. Or maybe the sharks. Sharks mentioned like you know all, all these people. It's the same ingredients. They all taste the same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do they mean by fresh? This guy isn't fresh. You know, they can do a lot of things with it. But uh, <laughs> one of the. Uh, <clears throat> Three of the movies, uh, three more movies that I found that I considered dark uh, 80s-ish movies. Um, one of them was in 79, but then it was re-released in 80, so we're, we're good there. Uh, but these were family films, but they were really darker films, but they were wide release and marketed towards kids. And the first one I want to talk about uh, is the movie called The Last Unicorn. Now, the directors were Jules Bass and Arthur Rankin, and if anyone who grew up uh, pretty much in the 80s and 90s are familiar with those names because it was they were pretty much involved with just about anything that you watched uh, as a kid. I mean, uh, they produced a lot of things, including Thundercats. Uh, so they were involved in both the 2012-2011 uh, Thundercats as consultants, and then they were also uh, producers of the original 80s 
TV series. But they did all of those. They did Tiger Sharks, Silver Hawks. Uh, they did the Lord of the Rings animated films. They helped produce those as well. Yeah, so like the, the Hobbit, yeah, Hobbit and Return of the King. There. Yep, they did the Hobbit and Return of the King. So you know, Jack Frost, all of those. So so these guys were big name guys for family films, and so then they did this film called the. The Last Unicorn, and on the surface, it sounded like it was you know decent. You know, a brave unicorn and a magician fight an evil king who is obsessed with capturing the world's unicorns. Great, that sounds you know, that doesn't sound too bad until you watch the cartoon. Now, uh, this cartoon, <laughs> what you find out in the plot, and again, this is the spoiler room. What you find out in the plot is that the unicorns were actually driven into the sea by a gigantic, scary-ass red bull <laughs> that's led by this king who lives in this decrepit castle by himself with one other guy, and the unicorn uh, is looking for her unicorn friends who are all in the ocean that are there for his amusement. Uh, and there are a number of other dark themes going on in here. She hooks up with a, uh, a troop of magicians and a witch who happened to capture an actual harpy, uh, which uh, I don't know if you guys noticed, but I don't think that harpy would have made it past the censors <laughs> nowadays. Do you guys remember the harpy in the cage at Last Unicorn? No, I, I watched these movies all again, so she she had I hadn't three, seen the movie in like twenty five years, so she had three breasts and they were very predominant and out there. Uh, <laughs> all I can all I can say is that Total Recall, you owe Last Unicorn money. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, initial thoughts. Uh, uh, do you remember seeing this as a kid at all? Uh, we'll start with Brad. Do you remember seeing Last Unicorn at all as a kid? <sighs> Barely. Uh, Barely. I, I barely remember it, and I, I wonder if my parents had seen it and saw the three-breasted thing and went, mm, no, uh, or, or <laughs> what was going on there. Um, but um, I know that uh, some of uh, the friends in, in, in my group often talk about being a Schmendrick. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um uh, Schmendrick, not not a really likable character, I guess, on all levels. Uh, and, and that's a Yiddish, well, it's a Yiddish saying. I can't remember what it means. It's not good. It's, it's no. it doesn't mean schmuck, but it's around that those same things. Yeah. You know? And it, and that character was the inept uh, Schmendrick. For those who oh. haven't seen it, was voiced by Alan Arkin, and he's the inept uh, magician that accompanies the unicorn on her quest to find her friends. It's funny because listening to it, it's a young Alan Arkin, and you can still kind of hear the voice in there, but yeah, his name does isn't really meant to be a uh, a nice name. Uh, I do yeah, it's, it's Yiddish for stupid person or Hebrew for a fat person. There you go. It's so that's your mate. It's it's your uh, supporting character next to the unicorn. It's uh, someone who's called a uh, stupid person in Yiddish. So <laughs> <laughs> that right there kind of tells you uh, this movie was really. I mean, it was geared towards kids. Get the head the unicorn in there, but if you look at some of the themes and things going on in here. I really don't think they would get past nowadays. What do you think, Scott? I mean, well, it's so hard to tell, you know, because there's so much from this era where you look at it now and you say, 
how could that have possibly gotten through? And then there's other things where you look at it and say there that we've moved in the other uh, opposite direction, but you know, these days you got to remember that this film and also upcoming Secret of Nim were G. Lots right. of films were G, you know, live yeah. lots of live action films were G back then. It wasn't until like the PG-13 rating had been around for a couple years and they knew what to do with it. It's so, like mid-80s that it started to shift towards this thing that now you have to be, you know, like practically like a Barney film in order to get a G anymore. And, you know, so they're, they're like, you know, they curse in Last Unicorn. Mm-hmm. There's he scariness. You know, he says damn and, damn and hell in here, and, and yeah. there's all kinds of language in here. Yeah, I mean, so it's, so it's, hard, so it's hard to say, but, I, you know, Last Unicorn was something, it never really registered with me when I was a kid for some reason, because I was, I was into everything as a kid. But Last Unicorn, I'm like, oh, Last Unicorn, maybe I'll see it. You know, <laughs> so, you know, which is weird, which is weird when you're, like, seven years old, because... Seven, you have two levels. You have completely disinterested or, ah, you know? Yeah. And <laughs> this one, I was like, eh, maybe, I don't know. And then I caught it, like, when it came out on cable. And I'm like, and I'm like oh, okay, it's... Mm. It's, not, <laughs> it's not a bad animated film. It's based off of a book by Peter S. Beagle, I believe the name is, uh, who was very uh, protective of his work, actually. He initially wasn't going to have... I, I read up that he wasn't going to have Bass and Rankin produce it at first, but then he listened to their ideas. He's like, okay, yeah, we can do it. But for me, especially watching it again, man, is it a bleak and dark uh, cartoon? It, it, it really, really is. I mean, here you have the unicorn, you know, who's pretty much the symbol of innocence and purity, and being chased by a Red Bull, which you could use that as a metaphor nowadays for a number of things as well. <laughs> Red it's Bull being an energy drink. <laughs> an energy drink. <laughs> Red Bull still ruining innocence 20, 30 years later. Uh, but uh, with this one, I mean, they they cover the theme with first off, you got the unicorn who pretty much is uh, in the beginning an arrogant prissy, like you know, I'm the best sort of thing because she is a unicorn. And you know she can un- <laughs> unlock things with her horn, and she you know she frees the harpy, which which is interesting because I don't know if you guys remember the scene, but she she frees the harpy, and the harpy goes after the unicorn at first, and she's just all like with her horn, like yeah whatever, and then the harpy goes after uh, the uh, witch who's the head of the zoo that put the uh, spell on everybody who actually was voiced by Angela Lansbury, if I remember correctly. Her name was Mother uh, Fortuna, or Mommy Fortuna. And the harpy actually munches on Mommy Fortuna. Yeah. It's not not just implied. I mean, you see the body there, and the uh, harpy is in between. And I don't know, do you think they they had maybe some extreme visuals in here that scarred us as children? Ah. Uh, I think that's. I think that kind of stuff's good for children, really. I think that if you protect them too much, mm-hmm. that you're gonna. Have, you know, if you don't, if if I feel bad for the kid who grows up and says, "No, I can't think of any any cartoons or anything I used to watch that gave that kind of frightened me," because either that says, "Okay, either there this is a sociopath in training," <laughs> you know, and they nothing affects them at all. Or 
It mean or it means that nothing was able to give them that emotional resonance and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think all this stuff is good. I think it's that's why Jim Henson and Spielberg and in this case Rankin Bass put all that stuff in there. I one of the things I loved about this sequence was that it was foretold. I mean, because she told him that she says your death awaits in that cage. You're like, that's. I'm like, yeah, that's a really interesting thing. And she had this whole thing where she says, yep, one day I know that harpy's gonna kill me. <laughs> well, then one day comes a little sooner than she expected. But even the, even when she does it, she's gonna know that mm-hmm. I was the one who captured her, and that's my legacy. And like, well, geez, that's kind of a interesting. Root for this sure. thing to take. I thought. I thought it was. I thought it was one of the grown-up themes that I actually liked about this film. Well, the, the, oh, go ahead, Brett. The one thing that at that during that time period, you had sort of contemporaries like Rankin Bass, Don Bluth, uh, Bakshi. A lot of their stuff. I mean, in that time period when they were kind of at the the height of the point where studios were giving them money to to produce things and, and to make things happen like that. There were more. There, there were a lot of it were morality plays, and you can't really do a morality play or something that kind of shows either good and evil or making good choices in your life without showing something kind of negative. So you look at. I mean, Wizards is probably not a good example of something for kids. No, but, uh, <laughs> I don't but, think know, any of Bakshi stuff in that era is. But, <laughs> um, but, but yeah. But Bakshi was a contemporary of of Bluth mm-hmm. and and yeah. some of the uh, Disney work uh, they they spun off from I think they both spun off from Disney yeah, I might be wrong there um, I but Rankin Bluth did for sure I yeah Bluth did for Bakshi sure might have yeah Bluth did really actually we'll, so. we'll we'll actually get to Bluth with Secret of Bakshi might have yeah I'm, I'm a little I'm a little fuzzy but I love Bakshi Bakshi, Bakshi so. I'm not but I think he was influenced by or or tried out for Disney maybe I'm not sure yeah um, I know Bakshi. that he worked he worked with Bluth I, God yeah. I really I really think that he did, but nah, right. I could be wrong. Um, Bakshi did do my favorite animated film of the 80s, though, American Pop, so... Oh, okay. <laughs> I had to get that plug in there, sorry. Yep. <laughs> he, he did the Lord of the Rings film, didn't he? Yeah, yep, he did. Yeah, he did the, and, uh, the rotoscoping Lord of the Rings, yep. uh, The Hobbit... Fire and Ice. Or not a Hobbit, yep. but he, he, yeah, he did, uh, he did Lord of the Rings because that scared the piss out of me with Gollum. Oh, uh, Lord... So. And uh, and Wizards is still one of my my favorite Bakshi yeah. uh, properties, uh, for I've sure. I've got that but, and Fire and Ice on Blu-ray and everything. I love it. So it, it was it was an era at the time where there was mature animated stuff being produced along with family friendly stuff uh, yep. during that time. So, and it was a little hard to see the lines blurred. I mean, because with Last Unicorn, as the movie plays out there's a spell that's done on the unicorn that turns her into a woman. And suddenly we get into this whole other storyline of her not wanting to be a unicorn anymore. And I thought that was pretty interesting to take with a story that's about the last unicorn and she turns into a human and doesn't want to be a unicorn again or forgets how to be a unicorn. Uh, you know, it, I thought that was kind of a mature type of theme. But like you said, Brad, it, it, they're meant to be morality plays and you can't do some morality plays without maybe getting a little dark now uh, what what about the soundtrack I want to talk a little bit about the soundtrack because it's a fantasy I mean this is really a true fantasy fairy tale and they went with the band 
uh, America to do the soundtrack. Uh, Brad, you remember the music from last year? Uh, very, very little. Um, uh-huh. But you, you look at uh, the weird thing about the 80s, and, and this all kind of ties in, is you had very interesting selections for bands to do soundtracks, like, you know, Queen. <laughs> uh, you look at the Highlander. Uh, mm-hmm. God, what, they did Flash something Gordon. else to Flash Gordon. Um, and then you had, like, Tangerine Dream ended up doing, uh, what, Blade Runner. and Legend. Yeah. So it was just, like, you had these interesting choices being done for music so having America do the music for that, that really doesn't surprise me or doesn't really seem out of character for that time period of, yeah. of films being done it, it was very very uh, folk, folk music-ish wouldn't you say there Scott <laughs> I would say so well I mean here's the thing is that and America is not one of these bands but I'm really into like progressive rock music Sure. And stuff like that. So, so naturally, like when they had the Ellen Parsons project type music, like say, like in Lady Hawk and stuff, I was like, yes, you know. <laughs> and so, and but in America was more of a folk slash AOR band. And there's just some stuff where you look back on it and say, nah, it's pretty good. Eh, that sucks, but that's pretty good. And <laughs> honestly, the American music I loved in this music. I mean, I I was just getting ready here. I'm like, going, oh, my life. <laughs> And I'm going through here, you know. Like, it's a, that was a those were great songs. I actually liked America's contributions to this movie quite a bit. I liked it a lot more than when they just decided one hour into the running time of Last Unicorn, saying like, "Oh wait, this is a this is a family film. We have to make it a musical." And they have <laughs> horrible sequences of Mia Farrow and Jeff Bridges singing, Bruce singing yes. completely off key. I was just like. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> just this terrible, terrible stuff. I'm like, get America back in here to do this. <laughs> Mia I, did read, I did read that, um, that incidentally, that I uh, I thought one thing was so funny. I think I read this on uh, IMDb, like everything else, that the album was was went number one in Germany. In 1983, yeah. And I it said, was... okay, yeah, because the band America is huge in yeah. Germany. <laughs> right, right, right next to David Hasselhoff, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, so uh, the music did actually kind of fit, except like when you said when Mia Farrow was singing. Though I thought Mia Farrow did fine as the voice of The Last Unicorn or the actress. It, it kind of fit the character that they drew. But, yeah, definitely the singing and Jeff Bridges... It was funny watching the credits and seeing how many names are actually doing voice acting in this film. It's crazy. You've got Christopher Lee in here, Jeff Bridges, Mia Farrow, Alan Arkin. You had, um, at the time he was big, uh, Robert Klein was in here. You know, you got uh, Angela Lansbury, you know, Rene Aubergenoy. uh, uh, Yes, uh, the guy from Deep Space Nine, he was the voice of the talking skull. Benson, oh. represent... Sorry. Yeah, Benson. <laughs> That's where I know him from, man. <laughs> and from Benson, too. Sure, they had, I mean, they had some big-name stars in this uh, film. Now, what also is interesting when I was reading up on it from IMDb is that the animation actually wasn't done by a U.S. company. It was done by a Japanese company. 
which uh, I thought the artwork in this would look pretty good, especially for the time. I don't know. Brad, what did you think of uh, the visuals uh, and the animation? I mean, I mean, for the time. Rankin-Bass Productions had a look to it if it was animated. Uh, if it was the stop-motion stuff, it had a definite studio look to it. So it was more of the, the pronounced noses, uh, a certain look around the eyes, the structure of the, the, the shape of the eye, as it were, and the cheekbones. All of it were very uniform. You, you, that mm-hmm. was the studio style that you got. Right. Um, so for that time period, you know, especially with the success of The Hobbit, um, um, God, I'm trying to think what other animated stuff they did besides this. Um, this this was their big standout one. I mean, outside of the Hob- the Hobbit was really their standout one, and you can see it. I think yeah. they're really their style in the old people, how old people yeah. are drawn. Yep, uh, it's like basically basically they're wrinkles that move. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's really it's it's hard to describe as a as a style, but when you see it, you go, oh, yep. You're, you're watching a Rankin Bass film, yeah. You know uh, the style. So, uh, Return of the King. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm trying to Wind of the Wind in the Willows. Wind of the Willows. I barely yeah. remember that one. I'm trying to think uh, what else that you'd see it and you'd go, oh yeah. Um, well, they. I mean, they were involved in so much stuff. Well, even when you watch the original Thundercats in the '80s, uh, the Frosty the Snowman. Or Frosty the Snowman. Uh, there you go. Mm-hmm. There's another one that uh, you know the nose of the. I remember the the little girl character. The nose has that certain look to it that definitely is Rankin Bass style. It, it, their their animation looked quite a bit, especially their earlier stuff looked quite a bit just like their stop motion. I mean, it really had that unique style to it. So and it also came... had a lesser frame rate. I'd noticed, like say, like then like a rotoscoping thing, or then uh, uh, Secret of Nim that we're talking about, so that you mm-hmm. know. It seemed, I mean, it the people seemed very like detailed, especially like the, it showed like very realistic looking people, although they were kind of like right. caricatures. It seemed they seemed, but they had like a slower frame rate, so that it seemed kind of rougher. But that was their aesthetic. You right. know, I'm not saying that they were sloppy. I'm saying that's their it was their aesthetic. Yeah. And um, it's like one of the things that they went through, I think. So. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of really great things with... Uh, I remember Last Unicorn. I remember the big red bull scaring the hell out of me. And I remember <laughs> being sad because of the unicorns in the ocean. That's what I took away when I was a kid from Last Unicorn, was that it was a very sad movie. And watching it again, even though uh, it does try to end on a happier note, it's still kind of a melancholy film. <laughs> you know... <laughs> And, uh, That's what I liked about it. I liked the melancholy thing. When they would try to pander kind of more to the kid audience, as I think when the film kind of fell apart, mm-hmm. but when it got to just telling the story, you know, about regret and hubris and, and who you really destiny are. Mm-hmm. and who you really are, exactly, very good. And, uh, you know, the and of course then you have, like, uh, all the themes that are touched upon with Christopher Lee's great character, and I, I, those were the parts that really stuck with me, this, that was those melancholy and mature themes. I felt it's when they said, oh, we better lighten this up a bit, that, <laughs> that they, no, 
know what? Commit, guys. Just commit to it because I know it's kind of a scary like realm to play in, especially when you got a multi-million dollar production. But you're doing fine. You don't need to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it, it just it, I remember standing out for me as one of those other dark films, and that's why I kind of wanted to bring it up. Um, and the animation in that, you know, that really kind of. Uh, set up a, a number of other films. Actually, another film, the the next one that I'd like to talk about, unless anyone had any final thoughts with Last Unicorn, um, is one that came pretty much that same year, which was Secret of Nim. Uh, and now Secret of Nim, really, I, I, I just, I literally just finished re-watching it today, and man, watching this film, it really, I was like, for a Don Bluth film, this one is, I think, is probably, you know, next to maybe uh, Earth A, uh, uh, was it Titan AE? Titan AE. Um, yeah. Which I, I really liked a lot, by the way. I love Titan AE. I think next to Titan AE, this is probably one of his darkest films to really, oh. you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, and this was his first one. I was reading up on it. Now, Secret and M, for those of you who don't know or haven't watched it, uh, it's uh, basically about a field mouse uh, named Mrs. Brisby who uh, has a very sick little baby mouse, and uh, she looks at the aid of a number of people to try to uh, help him get better, all the while with the threat of their house possibly being destroyed by the plow because it's moving day, but she can't move her young son because he has pneumonia. So she looks to a number of sources, including the evil rats, who have their own plan, and uh, they're a, they're a, a tribe or colony, whatever you want to call them, of very smart rats, and they give you a reason behind it, uh, and so there's a lot of mythology behind it. And this movie is dark. Don Bluth, it was the first one he produced after he and a couple of animators spun off of Disney, because Disney hadn't committed to doing full-length features for a while. And so Bluth and, comp and his company said, we want to do features. And Disney's like, yeah, you know, 80, we've done features. We're doing shorts now. And so they came out with Secret and them. <laughs> now, also, they just said it was so dark that they just like, eh. <laughs> yeah, Disney's like, yeah, you know. dark for them. You know, but uh, – what I want uh, initial reactions when you saw Secret and M when you were younger, Brad. You remember seeing Secret and M? Yeah, it was. I I I, I remember seeing the movie, and it was the, I think it was one of the first times reading a book and seeing the movie and mm -hmm. seeing some of the differences. Um, and the book kind of creeped me out. <laughs> um, because you've got these super intelligent rats, and they're super intelligent because they were experimented on. <laughs> the classic '80s, the classic '80s animal experimentation theme that carried on for quite some time. Yeah, uh, and they escape and create their own society. It's like, <laughs> wow, okay. And you know, the place is a mental institute, so it's like now you've got this whole fear of doctors and oh my god if something goes wrong with my brain they're going to experiment on me whole vibe going on and you got this in a film and then you got that freaking cat 
Holy crap. <laughs> Which they name aptly Dragon. Dragon! That's a cute and cuddly name. I want the dragon sitting on my lap and purring at me. No. Um, that I mean, that whole thing was just really, really creepy. And... and and you felt so bad for the little the little mouse that's got he's all sick and now they have to do all this stuff to try to keep him safe and have everybody not get killed you know it's just <laughs> there's a lot of tension dramatic tension going on throughout the whole film or book versions of it and it, oh man uh what a truly kind of edge of your seat sort of a, a deal uh, in, in reading it or, or seeing the movie. It gets to you. It really does, especially as a kid. What about you, Scott? Uh, your initial reaction, do you remember when you first saw it as a kid? I love... Oh, I was astonished by that movie. And I think, you know... I'm listening to you guys talk, and I'm listening to us go over this, you know, and I'm thinking, like, you know, I think that because it these things combined these what are kind of childish things, you know, you had the funny things with the Dom DeLuise and everything, mm -hmm. and combining them with these mature themes, I think a lot of these things are what kind of shaped me into <laughs> this person I am today, for better or worse, and, you know, because, you know, it, it's iffy, um, but... I mean, I loved it right away. I mean, this is one of those... Now, unlike Last Unicorn, this is one of those movies where I saw the ad, I said, Mom, we're going. And Mom was... <laughs> my dad's never been, like, a movie person. I seen, I saw some movies with him, like Aristocats and all that stuff, but my mom was the one who always took us to the movies and stuff. So uh, I was like, Mom, we're going. She's like, oh, Secret of Nim looks great. And she's watching this. And I remember her sitting there in the theater. I was... I think if this came out in the summer, I think, of 82, then I was like six. Sure. And uh, I remember her saying, oh, God, turn your head, Scott. I'm like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's just like, this is like, yeesh. But she loved it. I loved it. I just thought it was fantastic. And I mentioned earlier how um, American Pop was my favorite animated film of the right. 80s. Well, Secret of Nim is my second Right. And uh, honestly, uh, Bluth's other film, American Tale, is my third, <laughs> because I think that Don Bluth, by he upped the ante. I think he made more mature movies. I think he made more technically efficient films. I think he was trying to go into explore other areas. I said, well, we can still make these for family audiences, but we can also explore mature themes because childhood is scary. Brad brought up some such wonderful things there about like the doctors and everything like that. You know, and I was thinking, you know, oh my god, that this probably really affected me because I was in hospitals a lot as a kid. Sure. I was getting and I to this day I have a fear of hospitals because I kept getting like wheeled into surgery and they kept like taking my damn eyes out. <laughs> so like <laughs> let me have my eyes back, you know. But uh, they but you know uh but you know childhood's scary. You know, it's scary. I mean, you, the, um a fluffy little kitty looks like a dragon to you if yeah. you're small and innocent and helpless enough. And um I, I think that they translated this so well. That he really upped the ante, and he he is he he kind of kicked Disney in the keister, and I think that's why in the mid '80s, early '90s, Disney 
it took them until then. They they said, "Ooh, we got to get our mojo back," and they did. Yeah, I I'll agree with that. I mean, what stuck with me with this film was just how dark it was when I was a kid. I, I remember the owl, uh, oh. the great owl. It, for those, uh, there's a point in the movie where uh, Mrs. Brisby, who's voiced uh, by Elizabeth Hartman, who this was her last film actually, uh, she passed away soon afterwards. But she was a classic. Uh, she was a she was in a number of films, but she Mrs. Brisby goes sees the Great Owl to voice them, and the Great Owl is actually voiced by John Carradine, uh, <laughs> and that scene stuck with me forever. That it, it, when you say Secret and Nim, I immediately there's it's one of those two scenes that stuck with me, and that was it was the Great Owl because it was really a I mean she goes into this cave she's a mouse you're waiting for her to be eaten she's followed by probably what was one of the most scariest animated spiders to have been <laughs> on the screen and the thing was just grotesque and what does this Great Owl does this Bigfoot comes down squishes the spider and eats it in front of her and then he proceeds to eat a, mo- a, a moth it's like, and then he, he gives her some words of wisdom and flies off, but he's just this huge thing on the screen. And I remember seeing that and with the voice from John Carradine and the, the way it was drawn by Don Bluth just resonated with me for, for like ever. When you mentioned Secret and Him, the owl immediately came to mind to me because that was pretty pretty scary damn owl, wouldn't you say? <laughs> I mean, that, that scene with the owl was really like, Dark and creepy. <laughs> it had those glowing eyes, too. We didn't really see that in animation a lot up to that point. This, this, I don't know what you call it. Maybe you guys know. I don't know. But it's like that luminescence. It was able. They were able to create this like weird luminescence with the, uh, the lightning effects mm-hmm. so that these eyes just glowed in a way that animation wasn't supposed to glow up to that point. And I'm like... <laughs> It was just this eerie yellow thing with this wrinkled beak and horn curves. Well, well, his eyes didn't have any, his eyes didn't have any pupils, and he wasn't no. the only character like that. You had Nick Demas, who is the creepiest, cool, good guy ever. Uh, <laughs> Maybe that's I mean, how Tom Bluth draws cataracts. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But you had Nicodemus in there as well, who was another great character who had the cloudy, you know, kind of glowy eyes. You know, to I think that was his way of portraying kind of the magical, the magical beings maybe of of this world I, that he he portrayed. It, it almost seemed like windows to wisdom. Mm-hmm. You know that that no restraint, but you could you could look into there and see all this knowledge, or there was nothing in the way of it being seen or being given to you. So, yeah. I, yeah, very creepy. <laughs> I was going to say, because you hadn't seen many characters drawn like that before then. I mean, when I was a kid, I, I hadn't seen any characters drawn with no pupils in their eyes and glowing eyes, and you know, they were thin and, and spindly, the, the Nicodemus character was with the creepy hands. And, I mean, this freaking movie opens with you learning that Mrs. Brisby's husband dies. I mean, I mean, it starts with their dad dying. I, it, you're like, holy crap, okay, uh, we're, we're already starting off with, you know, this dad. And, and she's, uh, you know, you're facing that whole 
widow and she's trying to raise the three kids on her own type of yeah. theme going on. You and know? then you find and out that, that she has to do the one thing that killed her husband, yes. which is to, is to put the cat to sleep. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now she has but, to do it. Just, just, for for the night, we have to clarify yeah, that for our not, children. Not, the night. Night. <laughs> not, not poison and or kill said cat, but just to to put it, to, to to make it sleep so that they can basically move do their stuff. Uh, yeah, move, move what they what they need to move the house essentially and do do the other things to 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 keep the the child safe. Right, because they 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 need to move they need to move her house from the plow because they live in the field of, during the winter until springtime comes and then they've got to move and uh, they got to move her house and that's why she goes to the rats who you find out her husband actually was a hero of the rats because her husband was a smart mouse who was also experimented on uh, with the rats who were experimented on and so you've got these brilliant rats living in this rose bush and they owe their lives pretty much to her husband who died. Uh, so most of them are pretty sympathetic to her, but we do get a bad guy in here because you need a bad guy because it's not good enough that we have creepy good guys. We've also got to have a bad guy <laughs> named Jenner who was voiced by uh, Paul Schinner, uh, Schinner, and um, his character was interesting in that... Uh, out of the rats, I, I thought it was interesting because Nicodemus is kind of portrayed as this kind of old, wrinkly, creepy guy. But Jenner, did you get that kind of suave feeling from his character, the way they portrayed him? You know, where he's the villain, but he kind of had that slick look to him. Uh, was that he just was very or? suave. He was very slick. He was a politician. Because, you know, when you see him, when you first see him, he's not, like, trying to kill somebody when you first see him. He's trying to win his way by being this suave order and like you know be, and and actually like kind of get through with politics he's doing power plays and stuff but he looked like but he looked more like a beast in the movie too yeah. he had those sharp teeth and i love he has this great great line uh, when they do come up with a plot for murder later on he says no taste for blood eh <laughs> they've taken the animal out of you i'm like oh <laughs> about taking the animal out of you, you know, referring to their experimentation. I mean, there's a lot of levels going on with these characters in this film that are impressive for a family movie, really. I mean, you know, it's not just your cut and dry, you know, she's on a quest and she meets all these people. No, I mean, there's all levels to all these different characters. And they, they address so many different issues from the loss of father to, like you said, politicians. Because the rats have a plan because the rats are smart. And I love this angle. I totally forgot about it when I was a kid. How most of the rats didn't want to steal the electricity from the farmer. The, the rats were smart enough to hook up electricity in the rose bush. Uh, and which, <laughs> which you know, you know, they're smart rats from the Nim, you know, labs, and but they did. I love the morality there of how they didn't want to be thieves. They they felt bad about the fact they were stealing electricity, and they had an idea to get their own. And I'm like, I totally forgot that angle when I first watched it, and I was like. 
wow, that's actually really cool. Not only are these intelligent rats, but they're more, they've got morals, <laughs> you know, which they're rats and they have morals. I mean, was that an interesting spin, do you think, Brad? An interesting take that, that you know, they didn't want to steal, they didn't want to be rats, even though they were? Yeah, I, and I think that speaks to, uh, or at least the, the feeling I got is it speaks to our thoughts of what rats are. They're they're thieving rodents. I mean, that, I mean, their job is to survive, but they survive off the scraps and things that are forgotten and left behind, or they just will take it right from you. So it's a whole kind of a, I think, a reversal of that whole when you say rat to somebody yeah. or call them a rat, you're you're, it's an insult. It's you know, you're 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 speaking of their character in a very negative fashion uh, because they've wronged you somehow, probably. Um, and to see that that thought being given, that thoughtfulness to doing the right thing, definitely yeah. was a great reversal. I think, absolutely. Yeah, I, I thought so too. Uh, what about you, Scott? Uh, how the rats are portrayed, the good guy rats, anyway. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> the, the, well, that's a thing in itself, isn't it? Because I mean, how many of these animated films did we see where? If the good guys were cats, the bad guys were dogs. If the good guys were dogs, the bad guys were cats. If the good guys yeah. were mice, the bad guys were rats. You know, <laughs> we had uh, in this movie, and he did it again in American Tale because he had you know a good guy cat in that movie, even though all the other cats were like. Rawr. Um, <laughs> but he got all these. He had. He had. He. They've said no, no, no. It's more complicated than that. You know, you have. Rats who are good, rats who are bad. You have mice who are cowardly, mice who are strong, smart, stupid. It, there were all the, the... There was such a... In a little 83-minute animated film, he created these worlds where there was not this black-and-white distinction mm -hmm. that you could make choices for yourself, and you couldn't tell who the bad guys were just because of what they were or what they looked like. And, I mean, because I don't even think we I would honestly, like, look at the uh, look at uh, the magical creatures, I think we'd say, like, Jesus, they're scary, you know? <laughs> but, they, but, you know, they were also helpful, you know? And right. then, well, well, I oh, mean, you, you, get that, you get that thrown right away. I think the moment in this film where you get that where, okay, the rats aren't necessarily bad is... She shows up in the rose bush, and here you have the first guy you see in the rat hideout is the old inventor that she was talking to earlier, <laughs> who, whose buddy buddy you find out with the rats, and then you find out her husband helped the rats, and you're like, wait a minute, we, you know, these are rats, you know, I mean, even even the rat uh, in Charlotte's Web, who wasn't he named Nicodemus? Uh, he uh, he he was a thief. I mean, he was a slimy guy. Even though he kind of did good, he was still mostly portrayed as a smiley guy, a slimy guy. And here we have rats with diversity. Uh, you have diversity in uh, a secret in them, which you don't normally get, at least back then, in your animated films. You had kind of a black and white type of thing. You had a you know dark and light. You had like you said. One good, one bad. You didn't really have a diverse group of characters, and this film really has a rich 
diverse group of characters and an interesting dynamic. I, I had some notes in here on uh, some of the people who did the voicing for it. Not only did I mm. mention the guy who voiced Jenner, who, by the way, was born in Milwaukee. Hoo-hoo! He was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The guy who voiced Jenner. But uh, for those of you who are interested in uh, uh, the kids' voices, Shannon Dotery was the voice of the young sister mouse, uh, Teresa hmm. Brisby, and Will Wheaton was the voice of Martin Brisby, the one of the brother mice uh, uh, children. And I, I thought that was interesting when I saw that in the credits, because I'm just like, wait, that can't be the same Will Wheaton, but... It was, it, you know. I mean, they had stars in this film. Uh, you know, Dom DeLuise as the, I guess it was the bird or the crow, uh, who was the comic relief. Like you said, Scott, it, it was like one of the best performances Dom DeLuise ever gave. Honestly, uh, apart from his stuff with Mel Brooks, I'm serious. Like, because he did a lot of voice work in these in these uh, family mm-hmm. films before and after. But but you but his character of Jeremy the crow is. It was so good. I mean, his comic timing was great, and he had a real character and he had a real heart. You're like, oh man, he's great. Also, don't forget, I, I mentioned we mentioned this before we started the show, before we went all live and stuff. Space Hunter is a rat. I love it. Space yeah. Hunter, Peter Strauss. <laughs> Peter Strauss, who played the good guy Justin in in, in a Secret and M, went on right after this to be in Space Hunter: Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, the three D <laughs> post apocalyptic, whatever you want to call it, film. Uh, it's a great so film, much. but it's really <laughs> bizarre. Uh, so, but I mean, you you had some well-known actors in this as well doing voices. Uh, Brad, were there any voice uh, characters or anything that stood out for you that that you really liked? You know, I I think in that story, I I really Mrs. Brisby really just <laughs> to me that was the 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 main focus of the thing. It was right. her journey, her trying to take care of her kids, her eventually having to put the cat to sleep to do the thing that killed her husband uh, to find that courage to do that. Um, it, it was all about her for me. <laughs> when I think of this, I think of her, and that's like the main focus in, in my head. Although in, in looking back at this and seeing that um, um, Derek Jacoby Mm-hmm. Uh, Sir Derek Jacoby, uh, God, he's been in so many different things. Uh, the thing that really stands out for me that he did was uh, um, Brother Cadfile, right? Uh, and that uh, basically the Dark Ages mystery series, um, and also uh, playing the Master at a certain yes. point in, in Doctor Who. Um, God, he's such an amazing actor, and uh, his. Anything that he lends his voice to is gonna is gonna be awesome. Well, um, yeah, and it's his, his voice is the first one you hear is Nicodemus, and that yeah. voice is just so unique. Yeah, it's like kind of sends a little chills down your spine when you first hear it. Yeah, absolutely. The 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 Mrs. Brisby character that Brad touched on was so impressive about it, and I think I get, got a lot more appreciation of this watching this now. Was that you know, yeah, it's supposed to be a helpless mouse. She's scared. She's afraid, but she is so. But she discovers the strength in herself, and 
she is so strong. I mean, even before there, she like stops the plow herself by crawling <laughs> into the machine. I mean, it's like, and you know, when you see her next, she's like, you know, huddling and cr- and, and like and, and like you know, shaking like a scared mouse would be, but. She just cut the fuel line of a, of the plow <laughs> by herself, and then she discovers the courage to go into this like scary territory for her family. I mean, that is an amazing. Yeah. You know, it's it's sad when you can say that one of the best female characters of the '80s was probably this mouse, but it is. <laughs> it, it it is actually. She, <laughs> she's a she's a strong female character, but she's not overly unrealistically strong. I mean, mm-hmm. it's believable the courage that she musters up. You can see where she gets the courage from, but it's not like she's just kind of, oh, I'm I'm brave. I'm just going to walk right in. I mean, she's hesitant about going into the owl's cave. She's hesitant just for a moment about, you know, doing another action that that could bring her bodily harm. But she then she does it, and she is. She's an amazing female character to be written, not just for an animated film, but for a film in general at that time. And not only that, but we don't do the whole... I mean, there's a little moment where she, when she meets Justin, but they don't do the whole, oh, she needs a romantic interest, or she needs, mm-hmm. you know, she needs a, a, a man to, to save her. They don't do that really. There's really not that feeling at any point outside of when Jenner is going after her. But even then, it's not quite the helplessness. He, he Justin's just helping her, but... Yeah. You really... She is a strong character that still has that vulnerability, but you can see steps up to the plate immediately when she has to without really thinking. I mean, she volunteered to go... I mean, that's the big thing, too. She, she not only found herself... Uh, putting the sleep poison in the food, she volunteered to do that. She could have walked away, and she didn't. She she chose to do that because she realized the the, the scope of it. And she's a, I think she's a very intelligent female, uh, written female character for any movie of that period, not just you know of the animated films, but really interesting female character, and especially near the end where she's getting her hands wrapped because she burned her hands. You know, we don't have Justin sitting there with her going, well, you could come with me to the Thorny Valley or whatever. No, she... The Thorny Valley. Sorry. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Thorny Valley. Wow. That went there quick. <laughs> uh, I do have I, I, I do run the Perverted Charities Facebook group. Remember? No, it's okay. I, I, the minute minute I said it, I knew it was coming because says, I had to oh, say. Oh, I just said thorny. I, I, I said thorny. Uh, but I mean, you, you, they could have had that, you know, like you've had in other animated films, or where she's like, "Oh, thank you for help." You know, they don't have that scene at all. You, you know, I mean. She's the one that actually rescued her family in the end, really, you know, with her strength. It was all her. And it was really all and her. It, it was all her. Like Brad said, the movie really is all her, yet they don't really take all of the natural tropes that you have seen in other films like this at that time. Or natu- I shouldn't say natural, but common tropes that you saw with female characters at that time, and that you even still see today. Uh, you know, Mrs. Brisby really is an interesting female character 
in general, the way she was portrayed and written and acted and was just fantastic. And I really think that helped make the movie a lot more memorable was the fact of her character being that strong character that still had vulnerabilities but was able to do what she needed to do to to, to get the job done, you, you know, yep. and I, I very human characteristic to a very small mouse. Uh, so uh, I, I think this is really, uh, for me, one of the kids' movies, one of the animated films I saw as a kid that resonated with me to this day more so than many of the other films I had seen as a kid. I mean, this film really stuck with me for so many reasons, uh, including the fact that we have on-screen deaths, and we're not talking about Disney, oh, he fell over the cliff into the fog. <laughs> we have We have guys getting their arms cut. We have some guy getting slashed across the chest. And a dude, the bad guy, he, he doesn't get aced by our good guy. No, he gets a dagger in the back that you that see. That is the coolest. I remember just thinking that was the coolest day I've seen. Is like, like, that is the coolest death I've ever seen on screen. He he's a, a, gets the dagger in the back because he gets thrown in the dagger. And just goes... <laughs> Sorry, and I'm, you, like, you, I'm you nerding out about it. that. <laughs> you, you see it go into his back and he falls. You've got guys bleeding in a cartoon, you know, for kids, which when I was young, I didn't remember seeing that that often in a cartoon. No, uh, it was like it, it, parents must have been horrified. They would have been like, geez, first watership down, now this? <laughs> 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 You're not oh, seeing man. any movie about animals ever again. <laughs> oh God, Watership Down. There's one that just don't watch that back to back with Old Yeller and have sleeping pills oh, by you because. Oh, I remember Watership Down. That was another dark film back then. That oh, was... I and I still won't watch Plague Dogs. Sorry, if you ever do a show on Plague Dogs, <laughs> you're on your own. <laughs> But but Brad, uh, do you remember? Is that one of your early instances of remembering like an on-screen actual death in an animated cartoon that that wasn't like a Disney-fied death of a villain? You know, because I mean, you had the the death of the villains with Disney movies where uh, something fell and that was it, or you saw him fall off the cliff yeah. but it faded away. But here, I mean, we we have someone getting stabbed and cut. <laughs> and it wasn't even a cop-out death either. I mean, no. from from, and I'm not saying like you know falling off screen or whatever, but like yeah. he could have died from all the damage he took. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he gets killed before that happens, just so he knows yeah. how wrong he was. <laughs> you know, it was it was it was. It was a level of cartoon justice never before seen, I think, yeah. uh, at that level. Um, yeah, the, you, 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 were, you weren't allowed to feel sorry for him at all, you know, mm -mm. at the end. It wasn't, oh, he's going to, oh, he's slowly fading, and he might not have been a bad, no, 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 no. <laughs> there was none of that, none no. of that at all. No, I mean, he dropped the house on Nicodemus. No, we get to see him die. I mean, yep. <laughs> and well, that whole action sequence I thought was really well directed from when Jenner first goes after Brisby to when he's off. That whole section with 
with the sword fight and, you know, suddenly Jenner's buddy helping out the good guys, you know, just before he gets <laughs> slashed. And, I mean, that whole thing was directed not – he handled it like a real movie and he wasn't handling it like a regular animated action film. He, I mean, uh, like an animated, you know, kids action film. He handled yeah. that like a live action and looking at and kind of going back to what I was saying before with those contemporaries, they raised the medium to a different level to say, hey, you know, we've done all these Mickey Mouse things before, we've done all these cute and cuddly things, but here's what we can do if you really honestly look at this as a viable medium for telling a story. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Bluth did that repeatedly. Uh, Bakshi did it repeatedly (laughs) with the stuff that he did and granted for a slightly older audience. But, I mean, really took it a step ahead Mm -hmm. of what we had seen before and really kind of showing. And and I would say, and, and this might sound like grandiose or whatever, but I think that these movies here... With these, with with these particular directors, ha- has helped give us some of the animated films that we see today, and right. it is taken more seriously as an art form because mm-hmm. of that. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. Definitely, I would definitely agree. I've seen him even compared. They compared uh, a couple of these films to like what Miyazaki did does, you know, with his films, you know, and, and you can see that too. That it, it's that kind of writing where. They're not necessarily, well, like with our last group of 80s kids films where they're not writing it necessarily kowtowing to the youngest kid they're going for. They're they're telling a story that is meant for a family, but yet it's not exactly going to coddle and, and be marshmallow pillows. It, it's going to be stuff <laughs> that you sit down as a family and watch. When it's done, it's going to make the kids turn to mommy and daddy and go... There's a discussion afterwards, guaranteed. <laughs> and if there's not, something's wrong. You know, it definitely... They're, they're cartoons that, that make you... You know, that are, I think were made intentionally so that those questions would come up. The young kids would watch it and then... You know, mommy and daddy, what what happened to this? What you know, Or ask during the movie while you're sitting at home watching it on... At, at that time, VHS, but, um, you know, start discussions with your family, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I think you need movies like that, you know, that that's a good movie that'll get them to start discussion. I'm not saying you need to show, uh, you know, they found the right, I think, they, I think Don Bluth with Secret of Nim found just the right bar to go at, to show, you know, what he showed, you know, as far as the deaths and the getting cut and everything, without going over it to the point to where someone would really protest. Because you look at it, you go, okay, I didn't really want my kid to see it, but it wasn't that horrible. Your imagination kind of fills things in, yep. you know. And, and so that's why I think, <coughs> excuse me, I think Secret and M really is one of those animated films that everybody, anybody should watch, uh, especially with yeah. with uh, younger younger adult kids. I think you should watch it because there are just so many great things going on with it uh, that it it it's one of those films that you look at it today and it's still like I, I watched it today and it was still as 
impactful and enjoyable as when I watched it as a kid. And I felt like I was that kid again, you know? Yeah. And I want to say that the um, when I went to school, we had, and this would have been about sixth grade for me, mm-hmm. <laughs> back in my day. <laughs> um, but no, this would have been about sixth grade for me. And this was the time where... Um, like I said, it was kind of I got the comparison of book to uh, to to, right. to film adaptation because uh, this was read to us in class like towards the end of the year. So it was like I mm-hmm. got to read and we discussed the book um, and then saw the movie. And then the book before that was like Animal Farm. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Um, I'm surprised I'm not in therapy right now. Um, Watership Down, Animal Farm, Mrs. Frisbee, and the Rats and Nim. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Um, It was, yeah, that was, that was an, sixth grade was kind of intense. (laughs) You must have been Um, looking at every little woodland creature that came your way and saying, Shit's going on down there <laughs> that we don't know about. I, just, I wanted to hug everything. I'm like, oh, God, everything must be horrible for you. Here, have a hug. Um, yeah, it, it, uh, yeah the, it was really intense stuff, really, really intense. And again, you know, Animal Farm written decades before, mm-hmm. um, but still using animals as kind of a... Um, a way to sort of safely talk about humans and human sure. condition, um, and I think that's why it was done uh, in that fashion for you know the the emotional scarring I got for those uh, books being read in class. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, really really interesting to, stuff. They, they felt the need to animate those. You know, like, yes, what, what, exactly. <laughs> like water shipped down when we watched it in class, and everybody. Every kid in class watched at the very end, and we're just all like, you know, the black bunny died or whatever, you know. Not really taking in the fact that, you know, they're talking about politics with these bunnies, right? And we're like, the bunny bunny? died. (laughs) We we haven't gotten past the bunny died. But (laughs) another thing, too, is, and I think I want to bring up, too, there's a saying in, 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 in the group of friends is, you know, you know, Uncle TV, you you know, go see Uncle TV, Uncle TV doesn't judge. Right. You know, it's that you you set them in front of, you know, a DVD or a TV and mm-hmm. you don't talk about it. It's right. you watch the thing and that's that. This was done at a time where you didn't do that. Mm-hmm. You, you you Something like this, you had to sit down with your child, <laughs> you had to talk them through it. Or there was going to be therapy at the end. <laughs> Which Guaranteed. Is Which it is, is good. It is absolutely good. And it really does need to be done again. Mm-hmm. And it's it's sad that we've reached that point where it's like you drop a DVD in, 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 in your player and, and walk off. And you don't have yeah, that just... discussion to, to kind of talk kids through it because then they're going to make their own judgments, whether that's you know good or bad or whatever. That's not for me to say, but... Again, looking at the difference between these films from 30 years ago that we're talking about now yeah. to what's being done now, it, it, that that just really isn't done that much anymore. Mm-hmm. Or, or 
you know, it, we really need to get back to that. We really do. Because there's a lot of good stuff out there that... He, we talked before about the portrayal of good and sure. evil. That is something that develops a moral compass in a child. That's something that allows you to see consequences for actions without the child actually going through that experience. They can see it through another medium in which they can latch on to, like, animation. Right. And talking okay. the kids through that is, is how you, you help them work through it and understand it without having to go through the experience themselves. And, and we don't do that anymore, and that's really like sad. Like a parent. <laughs> like a parent. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Wow, so, I can I could not I could not agree with you more on that. That's fantastic. I was gonna say, that's that's well said there, Brad. Uh, so I, I think we're uh, pretty set that uh, Secret and M needs to be put on pretty much everyone's watch list. Uh, yeah, it, it, it really. Is, I just want to say that you know it really is. I mean, if you couldn't tell, it's one of my favorite mm -hmm. in the fields of like family fantasy, dark fantasy, whatever, and it's fantastic. The only other thing I would cut. Put on because we talked about the the characters, is the environments that they created were so oh, magical and terrifying. Because think about it, we don't know how big this farm is, right? <laughs> but we, you know, just logically, you got to think we couldn't be dealing more with more than like a couple miles here. At, at most, right? not even. At yeah. most. At most, you know, depending on if it's one of those sprawling, you know, Iowa farms we don't know or <laughs> whatever, you know, that just seems to like it's just it's more corn, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, we don't know if it's one of those or if it's just like a smaller farm, but the entire thing, it just seems so much larger because it, and not just because the smallest of the creatures, the smallest of the creatures, but because they created such a rich, creative, and terrifying environment that everything seems so magical. And right. it was, it's, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it but, really is. And that's, that's really, film. that's Bluth's style, too. Mm -hmm. uh, you look at some of his other stuff, it's all about world building, you know, and, and immersing you into that as much as possible, which uh, is one of those things that some directors don't, they skimp on it. Yeah. You know? uh, Bluth did not. And uh, that's one of those things that you, you come to appreciate with, with his stuff. Well, yeah, and you'd get those shots then too. You get the shot like at the very end or like in the middle where suddenly you get the perspective of where everything is in the yard and you realize it's actually not that no. far away, you know, where where they had to move the house to... <sighs> really wasn't that far away. <laughs> it's probably like 6 or 12 feet, maybe. <laughs> you know, but it seemed like a grand thing. Or, you know, the distance between the house and the rose bush, or, you know, stuff like that. You get the, the he'd yeah. show the one panel wide shot where you go, oh, that's where everything is, and Wow, that's that really that far away? <laughs> yeah. No, no, like you know? it's it's a tiny thing. I was being very I was being very uh, liberal in my estimation yes. when I said <laughs> just giving them uh, so, the benefit of the doubt, you know. Yeah, but but to those but to those characters, it really I mean that was their entire world, and it mm -hmm. was miles to them. So I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't think you I don't think you're really understating it from from their perspective right. at all. No, no, it's yeah. just, it the world uh. You know, and and that's again that feeds into childhood, right? Yeah. What do you know of the world? You don't have any 
you they give you those maps. They give you those globes when you're in class. You don't have any concept of that, Whoa. you know? Yeah. I, I lived in a small town in central New Jersey when I was a kid, you know? And <laughs> as far as I was concerned, New Jersey was a gigantic state. It's a little tiny state. <laughs> and then I, you know, then the whole world opens up and, you know, it, it the world just becomes larger and larger and larger the older you get, yeah. and uh, so and uh, and every time you discovered something that was unknown as a kid, it was magical and honestly a little scary. You know how many of us ever were like in a mall that we had never been in before, or like a mm-hmm. Disneyland or somewhere like that, and all of a sudden, oh God, wait, where I lost mom and dad. Where are they going? Where are they right. going? And if yeah. you don't have that, that, if you're out there alone in this wilderness like Mrs. Brisby was, you know, this magical world becomes terrifying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What's uh, speaking of that? Um, I used to live where in the same city that Mark is. Mark lives now. When I was a child, and it wasn't until and I'm 43. I'm going to date myself here a little bit. Um, it wasn't until I think two years ago that I was able to find the house that I used to live in. One because they knocked down the garage that was next to it, but two because everything that I remembered size-wise as a child was completely off kilter. Mm-hmm. You know that that <laughs> sense of that sense of scale was gone. You know, it yeah. wasn't nearly as big as I thought. And when I actually found, I stopped and I looked at the house and I really looked at the house and I went, holy crap, I found it. <laughs> and, and I stopped and I took pictures and I'm sure that the college kids that lived inside wondered who the creepy old man was. <laughs> but when I turned around to look at some of the landmarks that I remembered, it now they were a lot closer than I remembered them being, which is why I couldn't find the house in the first place. And walking from where um, where the old library was, uh, which is now the Associated Bank, just uh, outside of, kind of mm-hmm. on the rim of downtown, Mark, you, you know where that is. Yep. That was the old library, and I remember walking from the library to the house, and it seemed to take forever. But now, you know, that would have taken me, it would take me like three minutes. Yeah. So, you know, again, it, it comes down to, and that's the thing that Bluth perfectly portrayed in that, was the sense of scale. When you're smaller, everything seems so much bigger, so much more magical, and so much more intense, and so much more wondrous. Um, and it was just so so well done. And, and, yeah. and, and uh, God, I can't say enough about that. No, yeah. I, I think it's definitely a classic that, Everybody, like I said, everybody should should see, and they can sit down with their kids and watch it, really, and, and you'll have stuff to talk about afterwards, which, yep. which is a good thing. Uh, <laughs> so, Scott, any final thoughts on... on uh, no, I kind of blew my load on that, on, on, that last, <laughs> on that last one, but, I mean, it's just a brilliant sure. film. I just, you know... Yep. Now I just said something that sounded bad after I said it. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't, that was actually unintentional. Oh, God. <laughs> for once, for once it was unintentional. So, so the final film I wanted to talk tonight, we're going to jump uh, uh, types of films here, is a film that you, if you watched it, you probably wouldn't believe that Disney's name was on it. And it's called The Black Hole. 
or I should say Disney's The Black Hole. Oh, yes. <laughs> a, a film that 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 surprises me. I rewatched it and surprised me again that I was like, I forgot just how, I knew it was dark. I didn't realize just how dark this oh, film went. Yeah, my, my <laughs> mom always said, oh, that movie was so dark. I'm like, really? You know, as a kid, and then I watched it again, I'm like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Black Hole for Everyone is a sci-fi picture from Walt Disney. Originally came out in 79, was re-released in 80, I believe uh, you said, correct, uh, Scott? Yeah, uh, I just, that's where, how I saw it for the first time, because I was too young to see it in 79. Um, mm-hmm. I was only getting, you know, I'd still fall asleep. I, I fell asleep in this one, too. Uh, so, is, uh, but it got re-released in some parts of the country along with Sleeping Beauty on a double mm-hmm. bill. Yeah, and, see, you know, I saw this in a double bill uh, at the drive-in <laughs> back in my day. Uh, <laughs> so did Mark, I think. Food so did I. Food. Food of the Gods was the opening film. Oh jeez! <laughs> oh, so, so Black Hole must have, so Black Hole must have seemed like a big relief at some point. <laughs> I, I, and I was, you know, I was nine at the time, and I saw this. Uh, I remember seeing the huge freaking mice and rats and all the huge animals. I'm like, Bleh! and I went in the back of the car and like hid under the covers and tried to sleep. And then my parents are like, oh, Black Hole is on. And I'm like, <laughs> and they lied to me. They lied to me. Because I saw the end of the film where the rat, you know, the mice are, are huge and they're dead and they're decaying in the rivers and then the cows are drinking water. And and I'm like, oh, I remember looking at that and seeing the kids drink the milk. I'm like, oh, my God, it's going to happen all over again. <laughs> and, then, and then they kicked off the black hole. I'm like, oh, that was terrible. You people suck, and you're my parents. Who <laughs> to you? And, and then you follow up with the black hole going, oh, a Disney picture. This will be okay. Uh, you know, but as as a kid, you didn't pick up, I think, all of the – Really mm-hmm. negative undertones. It was it was so visually stunning, especially for that time. Um, I was I I even had the uh, I had a Vincent action figure. Oh, you, sweet! You could you oh. could pull the head up and you know and, and oh god, it was and you could pull the uh, the feet. The I had the Mego, I had the Mego uh, Maximilian. Oh, the yeah. Maximilian, yeah. And, <laughs> Which I still had it. It'd probably be worth a lot. <laughs> and I, I even had the, I had a Vincent T-shirt. Mm-hmm. It was some of the merchandise from from the film. That that sense of wonder and oh god, I love sci-fi so much. And that movie really, <laughs> really was so oh. cool. But then you watch it again later on, and you're like, oh my god, this <laughs> this dude is screwed up horribly. <laughs> I know. Oh. Uh, it, it, well, and for everyone who uh, who may not have seen the black hole, it's set in the future, and we have a crew on the USS uh, Palomino who discover a black hole and they find a lost ship that's hanging on the edge of the black hole, uh, just stationary, called the USS Cygnus, and they end up going on the Cygnus and they end up finding the uh, doctor, the uh, captain. Who, who the guy who's in charge now? I should say uh, of the ship, who's just this crazy uh, scientist who wants to go into the black hole. He's come up with this force field, and it's because uh, he's super smart, and he wants to go into the black hole. And he thinks his force field, his computations, will get them into the black hole. 
and you find out he did some really creepy shit to the old uh, <laughs> the crew of this ship in order to accomplish what he needed to, which was basically turning them into a whole bunch of uh, cybernetic zombies. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and then he's he's kind of in control, kind of not into this big red scary robot called Maximilian, which I find funny considering the crazy guy was played by Maximilian Shell. Yeah. Yeah. You, <laughs> you know, you had so many names to pick from <laughs> for that robot. And they like, go, go, we're sticking with Maximilian, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so this crew would come to find out this guy's actually crazy, and they don't believe uh, that his, you know, the story he's giving. And one of the people on the Palomino crews, uh, her father was on the original ship of the Cygnus, and uh, yeah, it, it really gets dark and heavy real quick. But what I loved is the uh, I I totally forgot while watching it again the cast that was in this film. I mean, you had Maximilian Shell who was a who was a very popular uh, um, actor, but then he had Anthony Perkins in here playing a straight <laughs> captain. You got Robert Forrester in here, you know. You got Ernest Borgnine in here. Uh, you know, I totally forgot they were in this film. Yeah. But uh, they they had these robots. One of them was Vincent, like Brad said, and uh, he was a snarky sob. Uh, yeah, and voiced by Roddy McDowell of all people. And then there was the broken. <laughs> then there was the uh, broken one, Bob, the garbage robot, who was voiced by Pickens. <laughs> Pickens. <laughs> but they weren't credited in the film. But no. but yet it was Slim Pickens and and McDowell doing the voices of these two robots, and they were hilarious. But at the same time, you had the hilarity of these robots. But then you got all these themes going on in this film. I mean, where to begin? First off, uh, you've got the doctor who can do ESP with the robots, which I thought was interesting. Uh, to totally yeah, forgot. that's one way of saying it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, here they're on a, they're on a, they're. They're on a mission to find habitable planets. They come across this crazy doctor who was too smart for everybody, so that's why he got sent on the mission in the first place. I mean, really, Brad, your thoughts with Black Hole, I mean, I, where do you begin with it, really? I mean... uh, you know, like I was saying before, it was so visually stunning, Um and, and that's you know one of the main things that I, I've always remembered about that. And yeah, the effects now aren't as great as they were then, but they don't necessarily stand up to, to, to today's standards. The themes of of what it was about. Again, you know, we we've, we're we're kind of looking at another morality play here. Of just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. You know? And that, that's one of the, the, I think, one of the big things that this really addresses. This doctor really wanted to, to prove something, and in order to prove it to the level that he wanted to, he had to start making some serious changes to the crew <laughs> on the ship, uh, which means either getting rid of them altogether or modifying them slightly. Um, you know, and I always kind of equated it to chasing the white whale, you know? Mm -hmm. 
the 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 black hole was was his white whale, and by God he was going to do it. And to hell with anybody else telling him how much of a frickin' hoot loon he was for trying to do it, because yeah, he was having none of it. Maximilian, <laughs> the creepiest frickin' robot ever, doesn't say a word, but he's just so intimidating. And that frickin' blade, that spinning blade, that he ah. <laughs> that was a horrible way to die. Just horrible. And one yeah. of them does die from that. Yes. Anthony yes. Perkins is the Anthony one. That, Perkins. Get you see him go and try to protect against a clipboard? Really? <laughs> you thought that was a good idea. Well. <laughs> to see it go. Puts the clipboard up and the blade goes through it. He chops at it, and then you look at the case on the VHS. Yes, I'm dating myself. And you go, "This is Disney." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because, because there was no gore, but by God, there was no mystery of what Maximilian did. Oh, because the sound. Captain. You'll never yes. forget the sound of that thing Crunchy. going through the clipboard and then into Anthony Perkins' chest. Ugh. And that face he makes is that, oh, yep, that's the face of the guy who's getting torn oh. up. Because <laughs> well, he doesn't fall right away either, so you know he's he's getting shredded first. Yeah, he's impaled on that sucker. <laughs> you know that's a classic example right there of where you didn't have to show everything on camera to exactly no. portray exactly what was going on. And again, you're checking the box, going, "Walt Disney, the black hole." So far well, we... again, you know, and this was we were I mentioned this thing like with the ratings, you know, and how uh, Unicorn and Secret of Nim was were rated G. This was PG, which was a big deal, because uh, unlike now where they have, you know, Touchstone and all these other things that are PG and it takes, like, nothing to get rated PG now, this was the very, very first Disney film, live-action animated anything that was rated PG. PG. And that was a big deal because this is the days before PG-13 when it honestly did mean it says... Parental guidance suggested <laughs> some material might not be suitable for children. So, in, in other words, it meant, yeah, they, you, your kids can go see this by themselves, but we recommend that you think <laughs> about it first. Yeah. And now it is it's just like they just ignore that. But I mean, yeah, this yeah. was the time when that meant something. Well, and you know, so... it, to put it into perspective, Jaws was PG, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I, that I movie so. fucked me up for life. <laughs> yeah, and I, again, I can't, I can't swim in open water because of that film. It doesn't matter if it's fresh water or salt water. I won't do it. Not gonna do it. <laughs> and again, and again, you can also say like if you want to compare it to '79 science fiction films that came out around the same time, Star Trek: The Motion Picture was mm-hmm. G. Yeah. Because and you know that had some horrifying things. That had the transporter scene, but like. Okay, well, if that's G, and this is BG, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. What the hell's going on at Disney, man? Like, well, <laughs> happening was that they were going bankrupt. They, their theme parks were su- supporting them. I've uh, discussed this on other podcasts and stuff that Disney really didn't have hardly anything that was making money as no. far as movies this time. They were in the wilderness for like almost twenty years, and this well, is right in the middle. Then this was their big, huge leap into adult right. 
adult-oriented cinema. And it, you, I didn't realize how adult it was until I rewatched it mm-hmm. just now. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and well, then he had the conversion. I mean, there's stuff in here that you would have saw on, like, Logan's Run and stuff like that. Not stuff that you would see, it, that you would associate with a Disney movie. I mean, they had the conversion table where they're they're converting people into the zombie, you know, uh, and they're showing it. These people getting the, the masks on and that, and it was freaking creepy even to adult, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. it, and the fact that it's the way the special effects in that were done. Uh, I read somewhere they initially wanted to try to get ILM equipment that they used on Star Wars, but it was too dang expensive. Everything done was done with practical and old school camera angles. That's why it does look a little dated, uh, you know. With it, but still, the I, I remember seeing the conversion room going, "Holy, oh my God!" I'm like, they're zapping people's heads. But they also did some in-house techniques that they invented that were actually really new. That kind of converted those old school things, like uh, that I was reading about. That, for instance, they had something that would. Um, where a camera could move over matte paintings in the yep. background and stuff, and it added an, a, an extra depth. And honestly, here's the thing: as I, I remember seeing this on the big screen, um, and I fell asleep in Sleeping Beauty, and then woke up in time <laughs> to see them at the bridge in the beginning of the black hole. Like, oh, oh! And I think I don't, I don't know. I think I was drifting out again. I, I was, I was, I was young at the yeah. time. So most of the times I did see this as a kid was on like Disney Channel, VHS, mm-hmm. all these cropped things. This I think was the first time since then that I'd seen it widescreen. I rented the high def from Voodoo sure. or something. Mm-hmm. I was blown away by just how vast, how impressive this film looked. I was just I mean I said my god this really well, is ambitious isn't it the the money that they spent on the ship alone because that was done in miniature right yep yeah they actually built that ship and and you know uh it was they spent so much money on this movie oh my god 20 million I think dollars that, and by that time I mean by that standard that's ridiculous at that day and yeah. age Ridiculous. Twenty million was huge. Star Wars was only ten. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, and you know the. Uh, I think that's why they ultimately probably re-released it right away because they wanted to. They had desperately like, needed to get their money, money back. Yes. I mean, but when it's all said and done, I think I looked at some numbers here. It made thirty thirty-five million, and that's out of the twenty you know twenty million dollar budget for the film alone. That doesn't include the additional like five or six million they spent in marketing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was like barely profitable. It, it, it did make money, but just barely. Just barely by the skin of its freaking teeth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then uh, reading some of the trivia on here too. I mean, it had computer graphics. It had the at the time the longest yeah. opening computer graphics scene. And folks, this is back in an age when if you could do a vector graphic cone, which is what they do in this opening, you had a Cray supercomputer yeah. doing that in real time. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I just and when I went to tech and uh, dating myself again, when I went to technical college uh, in this would have been 90, 1990, 91, um, Ended up using like 486 computer to 
uh, do 3D animation, but um, I had uh, time time synced VHS. Well, it was like three quarter inch VHS um, tape, and so we could render a frame, record the frame on tape exactly. And it took us like 36 hours just to do a fly through a keyhole that we, you know, we, we made like the knob and the, and, yeah. the, and the plate and all that. And that took 36 hours to move it in a section, record the, you know, render it and then record it onto tape and then move it again, you know, to do that whole thing. And it took a day and a half, you know, like, uh, yeah, a day and a half to do uh, where wow. we did it in shifts. <laughs> <laughs> wow, man. Yeah. And to and to roll this back now and go to 1979, and say that they and and this was just a wireframe sort yeah. of a cone that they went into, uh, that must have taken weeks to do. Yeah. Uh, just yeah, and and yeah, you did use a Cray supercomputer that could do all these computations, which by now, I mean. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm holding my Android up here, and that this the power of what this has far yeah. surpasses the computers that were available at that day and age. Oh yeah. Um, to 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 give anybody like a sense of of sort of processing scale, as it were, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, they. Uh, well, I, I was reading some of the other things in here too, like you were mentioning the model. Apparently was twelve feet long and one hundred and seventy five pounds. <laughs> yeah, it was a no no screwing around model that they built for that. No, they. I mean, and for seventy nine, I know there was the Star Wars, but it didn't have Lucas's name on it. But there's a visual effect or effects going on in every scene in this film. When yeah. they open the the crew of the Palomino are supposed to be in a weightless environment. So they're all on wires and stuff moving around the the uh, cockpit of their small ship, and they've got actually a hologram map. I, I mean, it was it's an ambitious project, especially for the time that it came out. Just and, even slight things like there's a scene in there where they're in the elevator, and Vincent's right next to him. Now Vincent floats yes. in the air, which of course now you have to understand. Well, wait. No matter what, even today it's kind of Woodby's bizarre, but you know you can do it with trick photography. Back then, no, there's no CGI, there's no nothing, and things didn't float, you know. Yeah. And there's a scene, and it just, and as if to like show you like how sly they are to say, oh well, it's on strings. He does a complete 360 in the yes. air, just very casually, and it's like seems like a no big deal. Yeah. And you gotta think. Yeah. I was looking at that saying, like, how did they do that? <laughs> or they've got him they've got him following the crew and it's the practical Vincent robot traveling with the crew through the corridors and, and they seamless. get they get on the transport seamlessly and he sits up in front and the people sit behind him and then it takes off in one shot and you're like how how <laughs> <laughs> And uh, don't forget, there's the part that really blew me away. Because again, most of the prints I saw, because I was like fading in and out when I was like five, most of the prints I saw were the, these old VHS and Disney Channel prints and stuff. When they get onto the bridge of the Cygnus, 
mm-hmm. and they see that star field behind him, and then you see like these robed figures in silhouette and everything. It's astonishing. I was am- <laughs> I mean, it's astonishing. This film has so much magic and really ambition and interesting things, all of which is just completely incredible until anybody speaks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once they speak, then that goes out the window. But <laughs> and, uh, and ideas and all that, really good. <laughs> yeah, considered, I think, by most as the least scientifically accurate film ever in the history of film ever. Uh, <laughs> you saw the Neil deGrasse Tyson thing, didn't you? I was... No, okay, I yeah. hadn't. Oh, you no. hadn't? No. Neil deGrasse... They uh, TMZ or one of these people that just kind of like follow around looking for famous people, one of these sites actually cornered Neil deGrasse Tyson um, and said, what is the most scientific... Because they knew like he was like nitpicking about everything. He nitpicked about the Starfield and Titanic. He nitpicked about gravity, you know, because uh, he's like a super scientist. So, of course, like that's the first thing he sees and stuff. Right. Uh and they asked him, what's the most scientifically inaccurate film you ever saw? He just went off on the black hole. Yeah. He said, oh, it's terrible. Oh, the black hole. He says, not only is this scientifically inaccurate, but it is. it would have been so much more interesting if they were, in sci- if they were scientifically inaccurate. I- accurate. In 1979, I knew more about black holes than they did. And he used to like, went off and he talked about how, and I'm no, I'm, not a great scientist, uh, so I'm, I'm just trying to paraphrase what he said. He, that yeah. he, that if once you went to the eye of a black hole, they knew back then that everybody, you would your bodies would stretch. Yeah, spaghettification. Yeah, and they called it spaghettification exactly. And um, he said that would have been great. I'm thinking like this movie was horrifying enough, Neil. <laughs> 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 without ha- without seeing you know Robert Forster into like a tiny like thin spindle, I just kept on reminding myself of uh, this one time I had this. I'm I'm just gonna really quickly say this. I'm sorry, you can cut this no, out. It's later. okay. <laughs> um, is that when I was in college, and like nine, and this was like during I think this is around 1996, 1997. So I was like midway through college at that point. Um. I had I was taking a history class, history historical evidence and analysis, and I had this wonderful uh, professor's Middle Eastern guy, can't remember his name, uh, Egyptian professor, he's just fantastic, and I said, yeah, we just got, and he I, he saw me get out of the car and go into cabin and says, hey Scott, how are you doing? What do you, where, where were you? I says, I need I need to go see a movie. Do you know the movie? I'm like, yeah, I just got back from the movies. I went to go see this movie with Nick Nolte called Mulholland Falls, which you'll remember <laughs> like about this the hats the, these it's kind of like the same thing that Gangster Squad was basically last yeah. year. Um, and I liked it. No one else did. I liked it. Um, and he says, and he says, oh, I'm looking to go to the movie right now. Is it any good? I says, yeah, it's good. And I thought, oh, who am I talking to? I thought. You need to know, though, it's... I'm going to tell you right now, it, it's not historically accurate at all. <laughs> and he said... And this professor who, who, like, dealt in history and told us, you know, how to research census records and look through, through all these things, that was the whole point, is research, research, research. He just said, oh, who gives a damn about that? I just want to see a movie, God damn. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm thinking, Neil, lighten up. I love you. I get where you're coming from. I totally get it, but eh, let it pass. <laughs> it, it, what's funny about the black hole, too, is I always consider it Disney's kind of lost, like, classic sci-fi film because, I mean, they finally did a proper restoration, what, the 25-year anniversary or something a, a while back. Uh, they, they did release it on Blu-ray finally, but it was really one that they marketed for a while when I was a kid, and then you really didn't hear about it or see anything about it. You know, it wasn't in any of their really montages after a while. It, it Black after Hole a while, it was just sort of that, like, experiment kind of faded, faded into history as it, that's that movie over there. <laughs> but I did read that it was because of this movie that they started the Touchstone Pictures Depart, uh, division of Disney so they could make more adult uh, material and not have the Disney name on it because apparently... Well, and they did, you know, they horrified people. And they did play around with it a bit and then, you know, they did... I can't remember if... Maybe one of you can correct me if this is an actual production or if they just released it, but, I mean, they did uh, Watcher in the Woods shortly afterwards. I think so, yeah. Which was terrifying. Something <laughs> Wicked This Way Comes. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, of course, uh, not as terrifying, but certainly more adult, Tron. Oh, yeah. Which, and I don't think they could have touched Tron with the effects and everything without tackling Black Hole first. Right. Honestly. I think, yeah. that, I think, I think you can kind of even see a nod to that in the uh, sequel, Tron Legacy, where in one of the opening scenes, uh, little Kevin Flynn, the kid has a black hole poster on yep. the wall. As if to say, you know, we wouldn't be here without Tron, and Tron wouldn't be here without that. Well, and, and the big ship in Tron, too. If you look at the big, long ship that uh, the uh, Master Control... Uh, oh. he, if you look at the yeah. way it's kind of designed, it, it has hints of the, the black it hole like, ship. It I mean, like from its side. It? Yeah. Good it really does have that Cygnus yeah. kind of look to it. That's what I thought when I first saw the uh, ship in Tron. But, yeah, it was because I think this movie really did open up going to Disney going, you know, we could do some more mature stuff, but I don't think we want to put the Disney name. <laughs> no, in fact, the second film that they released uh, that was PG, they released just in early, early, early 1980, was a, a comedy, Midnight Madness which right. some people just love, and I absolutely hate, by the way. <laughs> but uh, they actually went out of their way. Now, when they marketed, it says Disney right over it. But well, yeah. back then, they made no mention of it being a Disney movie. And you had to look really closely in like on the poster and in the credits to see copyright Buena Vista. Oh, that place. But if you didn't look at that, you would swear that it came from Crown International or one of these other places, but it was a Disney film. But I think they looked at that and they said, yeah, we, we can't put the Disney name on that, you know? So. Well, they've tried that a couple of times with their other stuff, and they found they can't. Uh, I think recently, wasn't it four or five years ago, Disney tried to do that again to where they were just going to have the Disney brand. That was until they found out they can't put the Disney name on Bad Santa. Uh, Disney Bad Santa just doesn't work. Did they try you, to do that? With they, Bad Santa? Because Bad Santa was, I believe, Touchstone or Miramax. Uh, Miramax, which, I think. Miramax, which one they own, 
they had there were talks and I remember there were examples of where they were going to put the Disney name on oh the title God. because you know go to one brand and it didn't it didn't work out real quick there's, there's, there's a massive chasm between uh, the black hole and midnight madness yeah. and, and, and Santa, having yeah. Billy Bob Thornton doing <laughs> anal sex with people in the mall <laughs> that's like that's 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 the Grand Canyon of <laughs> Well, no, but I mean, it, it still it goes along with here, you know, putting the Disney brand name on something that, you know, Disney is more associated with very happy, friendly rainbows and not Anthony Perkins getting chopped up by a, a large robot. Well, it's because, uh, <laughs> you know, the Walt Disney name went Walt Disney the person. And I think, you know, I some people have said, oh, I remember when in the 80s, when they started talking about stuff like this, there was lots of people saying Walt Disney would be disgusted with this, and I don't think he would have. I think at <laughs> least for some of the things like Black Hole, Something Wicked This Way Comes, Tron, those things that kind of kept that still like... Now, I don't know how he would have thought of like Down and Out in Beverly Hills when they did the <laughs> Touchstone, and that they started doing comedy, drama, stuff like that. But I think that he would have been totally cool with it, you know, because he developed a wide mm -hmm. array of emotions. They just didn't have these rating systems. They didn't have uh, the codes, the MPAA codes back then. They right. had one code. And um I but I mean like I remember in the eighties uh Splash was about to come out and this was before <laughs> the, and they finally chose that as the first touchstone movie. Mm -hmm. That's how the reason they did that is because there was a controversy for a while. They didn't know what Splash was gonna get rated and they said Splash is going to be the first Walt Disney film rated R. That's what they were saying. Because they knew that it had nudity and stuff in it, right. you know? And that Tom Hanks was talking about banging Daryl Hannah, who's a fish. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, you know, it's like, like this isn't The Little Mermaid. Uh, you know, we hadn't done The Little Mermaid yet, but it's not a, that kind of fairy tale. And I remember they did the touchstone to get around that. Mm -hmm. Um, to say, okay, it's oh. not Disney, it's Touchdown. It's not yeah. Disney, it's HBO. And, um, <laughs> you know, and, and they but, did that because the Walt Disney name was so associated with this, mm -hmm. and they were already getting flack for films like The Black Hole, like this, because, by saying, mm -hmm. like, oh, Disney would be disgusted. Now, he would have been fine with it um, on certainly these things that at least showed imagination. And then, you know, later on, going into the 21st century, I think he would have been totally cool with the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, too. Yeah. Yeah, oh, definitely. Uh, now, what do you think, though? I thought it was interesting, and I totally forgot about the whole, what I call, 2001 ending to oh, the whole where it gets existential and theological suddenly, like, almost felt out of nowhere with, with, with the ending. I mean, you, you got the devil uh, imagery, and you got the angel imagery, and suddenly they've got this planet that's glowing white. And, I, I mean, you're getting hit in it. I mean, if someone doesn't pick up that they're going for... Heavens on the other side of the black hole. Well, depending I, on how I, you live. I uh, think it's it was really kind of a just desserts sort of a scenario because mm -hmm. you had, and I remember this distinctly: the Doctor and Maximilian were combined into one entity, yes. and they're overseeing hell. 
mm-hmm. where where the rest of the the good guys ended up flying out in what you kind of assume is uh, is heaven, and they're going to a, a planet, yeah. a, a paradise, a, a planet, and they went through safely to the other side. So, you know, kind of that. If just because you can doesn't mean you should, and right. if it doesn't turn out, here's your reward. Right. <laughs> and yeah. I really kind of felt that that that's what happened. He oh. he yeah he kind of went kind of like went through this heavenly portal. You saw like an angel thing, and then they're going towards this planet on this other side of the universe. And you can think that either they passed through heaven and are now exploring some unexplored world, which is kind of like what I was thinking was going on. Yeah, and actually, if you read the Gold Key comics, Gold Key got the rights to do the Black Hole comic book, and they actually were in another universe. So they kind of continue that story on because they got the licensing for it, and it's very interesting. So they kind of pass through our heaven and hell here in our universe to another universe, possibly. Yeah, I really want to read... It really... I'll tell you this, but it was so vague that it really made me want to read the Alan Dean Foster novelization. (laughs) I was like... Huh. I wonder your, what, your what Al said. But that imagery, like you mentioned, I, I forgot to mention, yeah, the uh, combining of the Doctor and Maximilian into one was one creepy image. His just eyes looking through the visor. and Yeah. And then he stand Maximilian, the Doctor-Maximilian combo is hovering on this mountain, and you've got the, the, the people and the fire things. and brimstone. I mean... That's a pretty freaking scary scene. Yeah. <laughs> the end of that really is. I think it had some interesting ideas there, but mm-hmm. I always found the ending to this movie so underwhelming. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I'm thinking, like, what is on the other side of this black hole? And then you're just like, heaven, hell, uh, you know, the usual. Like, oh. <laughs> well. <laughs> Almost like, they, <laughs> almost like they weren't quite sure how to end it. Uh, and, and I maybe... actually felt, thought, wondered that because you, you see it's... them, the last time you see them is they're in the ship. There's no dialogue. Yeah. No dialogue from them in the ship. You know, they repeat like loop dialogue from the earlier in the film, but you just see them in the ship. I'm wondering if this film wasn't in production at some point because I've never read these early drafts of the script or anything like that what they were working with. I think they're available online somewhere, I imagine. But you just see them in the ship. I'm wondering, like, were they filming this and saying, by the way, directors, what what happens next? They're like, "Mm, we're figuring it out, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. By December 1979, we'll come up with something. (laughs) (laughs) But it's definitely, I think it's definitely what I call the lost Disney film, though, because, you know, a lot of people don't realize that that movie, one, is out there, and two, that that it was Disney, you know, and that it's, it's actually this really creepy movie that I think people should watch, you know, I mean, you know, even even to the bad guy getting crushed by the huge monitor at the end on screen, for oh, right yeah. now. you know, uh, to the idea that he wasn't exactly in control with Maximilian being the one in control, which I always wondered about that angle when I watched it again, I'm like sitting there going, are they alluding to the fact that maybe he's doing Maximilian's bidding and not necessarily his own? No, <laughs> I, 
you know, the one thing that in, in watching it again, the thing that I kind of felt was that sometimes you make something, you pursue something, and you are no longer in control of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like he wanted this thing so bad, he created and manipulated everything, made Maximilian and made all of his zombie minions, but in the end, it was sort of his his vision, and at the moment that he doubted, all of his creations went, mm, you're going ahead with it. Um, <laughs> yeah, he got totally Frankenstein is what happened. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and again, that's sort of going back to the morality thing, that morality play of, you know, you, you wanted this, and here you go. Right. You get it now. Mm-hmm. Be, careful what you wish for. <laughs> be, yep. be careful what you wish for. Well, uh, I think we're going to wrap it up here. It is getting kind of late. Um, I appreciate you guys uh, doing this with me, sitting in and, and reliving these dark 80s kids movies. I think uh, I, I'm really enjoying going back and revisiting these old films I watched, haven't watched since pretty much I was a kid. Uh, you know, and, and seeing new stuff and not realizing some of the messages and subtext and things that were in them that were supposedly marketed towards kids and you pick up on all these other layers underneath watching them now that I'm older. Uh, <laughs> any know, final thoughts on these films? Or, or Go ahead, Brad. The one thing that I wanted to throw in there too is and it, it, what, what you're saying Watching Poltergeist when I was a child was a very scary movie. But then watching it after I became a parent, it became scary on a whole different level mm-hmm. that was completely emotionally unobtainable to me because I had never had a child. Mm-hmm. So going back and watching some of these things, you do see something new now that you have different life experiences, some of the things that you might have glossed over as a child and went, eh, okay, whatever, now have meaning. So to be able to go back and watch these things and revisit some of the movies of your childhood, not always a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, could be a conversation starter with your kids or make you think about things or maybe put you back in a situation where you kind of maybe reaccess what it's like to be a kid again and mm-hmm. your job as a parent to try to help your child through it. So, you know, not a bad idea to revisit some of these things. Yeah. Scott, any uh, final thoughts with uh, this and uh, visiting these darker 80s kids? Wow, well said. No, well said. I'm, I think that, you know, I, I think that revisiting them, yeah, you get a new perspective on things. I, I'm the only one of us three that, that's that's still like the single guy here. <laughs> uh, I'll probably be forever. You know, it's gonna be it's gonna be like you know, me and that me in the nursing home. Like, ooh, maybe she's available. But um... <laughs> dude, from what I hear, that's not a bad place to be when you no. you, you, no. you can clean up in the nursing home, dude. That's what I'm thinking. That's Bam. What I'm thinking. That, that, see that? See that? See that's my zone. That's that's my window. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, no, you you do you, you well. I think that when we're kids, even though we have these we have these perceptions of the world and these these stories that we see, and I think that we think we grasp everything as a kid, but we really don't. We don't really follow mm-hmm. the stories as closely, I think, as we think we do, and so a lot of these films. 
that were released around the time we're getting to rediscover now, which I think is really amazing. I mean, I'm imagining now that there's going to be somebody's going to do a podcast or whatever the equivalent is like 15, 20 years from now about watching Wally for the first time in 25 years. <laughs> sure. And catching on all yeah. the themes going on in Wally, you know, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And See, I, there, but there, there's another good example, though, Scott, too, is as a child, you're like, oh, cool robots, they're in the future, and oh, look at those fat people. But yeah. the, the, the message that it tells is, is something completely different. Completely yeah. different, completely much more mature, a lot of stuff going on there. And I'm discovering that about these films, and it's amazing, actually. I, I love it. It's one of the things that keeps me going back to film in general. And uh, fantasy and science fiction in, in particular, are these mature themes being touched upon in these works? You know, it's really an impressive, it's an impressive feat, and it's one of those things that, it's the reason why these films, even the ones that didn't do so hot when they were released, people are still talking about them 30 years later, mm-hmm. is because there's a lot to talk about there, you know? <laughs> so um, it, 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 I would recommend it to anybody, you know? And sometimes you're going to come across something where you say, ooh, this isn't quite what I expected. <laughs> That's not as good as I remember. But then other times you're going to look and you're going to see a lot more, you know? Mm-hmm. So don't hit it and quit it on movies, guys. <laughs> keep, com- yeah. keep coming go, back years go, later. Go back. Go back to them, definitely. Yeah. Uh, and, and we may do another one of these cause, just because uh, I hope our listeners don't mind them. Uh, these are just so much fun because, like you said, I see so much more now going back to them. There's oh, yeah. another set of three that I may want to go back to. It's going to be... Legend all, in there? <laughs> we could do Legend, but no, I was going to do just... It, it's sci-fi, not necessarily dark okay. films, but three sci-fi kids' films uh, oh. or family films uh, I guarantee I was there at the opening day in the theater. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, people, uh, you want to stay tuned in and look for it in the near future, guys. I'll let you know which three. Uh, you probably kind of can probably suspect which ones uh, that res- that stuck with me with I'm a kid that weren't attached to Jorge Lucas. Uh, <laughs> so uh, so uh, why don't we wrap it up quick, Brad? Why don't you tell them uh, where you can find your stuff at? Uh, you can find my stuff at uh, galacticnetcasts.com. Uh, do two shows. One is the Alien Invasion, and the other is uh, Sci-Fi Geeks Club. And uh, I also do a um, a blog. Uh, I've been bad. I haven't written a post in in in, in a week and a half. Uh, but that's uh, spectrumforce5.tumblr.com. <laughs> think about it for a second um, and uh, yeah those are the main things that you can you can find me at and uh, working on finishing up the studio this weekend so the audio quality on my end is probably going to go up quite a bit <laughs> in wow. the next couple yeah, I'm, of weeks. I, 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 got, I got to get to that level yet I, I'm working on it slowly but uh <laughs> Definitely, it's yeah, it's, it's an investment. I'm, but we're building yes. a, a table this weekend, and we dropped uh, like a hundred and thirty bucks on lumber, lumber to build yeah. the build the tables. <laughs> so eh, it's, it's a gonna be a nice life. table, though. Yeah, it's going to exactly. be a hell of a table. <laughs> it better Scott, be. What about you? It better be for that price. Yeah. Uh, I have a web series called Movieocrity. That's M-O-V-I-O-C-R-I-T-Y. 
that's on Vimeo, vimeo.com slash channels slash movieocrity. And that's all about exploitation cinema and uh, slightly kind of rant, railing against um, the sameness and mediocrity in uh, more mainstream fare. A new episode just premiered, uh, so I'm doing more movieocrity. Uh, it's also on YouTube. I like Vimeo better because they because YouTube <laughs> sometimes cuts my episodes and everything, and they suck. But I have it on both YouTube and Vimeo, whichever you prefer. Vimeo is better. I also uh, have started a uh, podcast of single movie reviews and you know m- daily life musings, kind of called Cinema Obsession, mm-hmm. which I'm not going to spell for you, but you can look that up on Podomatic. Uh, Cinema <laughs> Obsession. Uh, just combine the words together and figure it out. And uh, <laughs> th- so that's there. And uh, Brad, you think you've been bad. I have a website called Film Geek Central that I have not, uh, filmgeekcentral.com, have not written anything for in a couple months, although <laughs> other people have. And <laughs> I think I'm going to go be writing some stuff for it soon or figure something else out. But, you know, you can still read my stuff there at filmgeekcentral.com as well. Great, guys. And, yeah, my stuff... Uh... <laughs> Well, you can find uh, the podcast here, video version, links to the video version, plus the audio versions of these podcasts on specialmarkproductions.com slash the spoiler room. We are on iTunes as well as Stitcher. Uh, So we are on both uh, those now venues. And uh, we are also on a number of websites, thanks to uh, Brad through Midwest Communications. Uh, So we are branching out slowly but surely. Uh, You can hear our audio versions of our show uh, there. Otherwise, you can catch my reviews on my channel on YouTube, uh, specialmark, uh, youtube.com slash specialmark, or on wheelofilm.com where I'm, I'm doing reviews there as well. So I'm kind of all over the place. We have the Film Jerks podcast, Astro Radio Z podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, all those links you can find at specialmarkproductions.com. If you go there, there's a friends uh, section where you can find links to all stuff, to Brad's, to... Uh, I think I've got Scott's up there. If not, it, it will be up there soon. i got to update the web page. So nice. uh, <laughs> I, I think i, I got to put your links up there yet, Scott, but uh, definitely have to update okay. the web page. I'm just as I'll bad. I'll have to see your website then. I, I, I'm, just <laughs> as, I'm just as bad. You guys with your blog, mine with my web page, I haven't updated. So. Uh, but I thank you for going on this journey. Uh, we Hopefully we'll do another spoiler room in a couple of weeks. I want to do a more regular... Uh, I'd like to do a little more regular every other week or so. I know everybody's busy with uh, their various projects. so yeah. uh, And uh, definitely going to do another three-pack uh, three of films, I think, of uh, sci-fi this time, of kids' sci-fi films uh, that are favorites of mine. That's Because it's my show, damn it. And <laughs> I'm just, I'll and pick ones that I want right. to I want to pick ones that I want to talk about, dang it. So, <laughs> uh, I want to thank everybody for watching and listening, all the listeners, too. Uh, that listen to us, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please tell your friends, have your friends tell their friends, and visit all this stuff from Scott's stuff and, and Brad's stuff, all great listening stuff that gets you through your day for sure. Uh, and remember, with the spoiler room, folks, uh, the uh, movies are definitely spoiled, uh, but the conversation is definitely fresh. Have a good night, all. Bye.